Problem Gambling podcast is proudly sponsored by Gamban, the simple and effective way to block access to online gambling on all your devices. If willpower slips, Gamban doesn't. Go to gamban.com to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Problem Gambling podcast. I'm Barry Grant, an addiction counselor with Extern Problem Gambling, and my co-host is Tony O'Reilly, also an addiction counselor with the project and the co-author of the book, Tony Ten. And today we're delighted to have uh, one of our colleagues from another uh, service from Coon Wirra, who are the, I think, and maybe Michael can correct me on this, I think are the biggest provider of residential addiction treatment services on the island of Ireland. Probably, I think, even more beds than the HSC, I, I think, for residential addiction treatment. A huge, huge organization that have been going for a long time. And you've heard us mention Coon Wirra in the past. Tony received his residential treatment at Coomera and, and worked with Coomera for a period of time in the past. So today we're delighted to welcome Michael Guerin, addiction counsellor with Coomera. And Michael has been, sorry, I suppose we've never spoken before, Michael, but I've heard you many times on radio and talking on TV and uh, being interviewed for newspaper articles about gambling addiction. Uh, you're quite an outspoken voice in the area and you have a lot of knowledge. I mean, starting out, how did you end up working for Coomera and how long are you working with Coomera? Um, good morning, Barry and and Tony. And thanks very much for the opportunity to, um, to do your podcast. Um, I've been a great follower of both your work for quite some time. And I've been involved with Coomera since 2006. And I suppose in common with a lot of people who end up working in the field of addiction rehabilitation, I, I came into the field by virtue of my own experience. I'm a former resident and graduate of Coonborough Brewery. Um, and my issue was alcoholism. Or should I say my issue is alcoholism because, as you know, it doesn't go away. Um, and having trained to be a counsellor, then I suppose I became fascinated with emerging trends within the field of addiction in general um, and I arising from that I suppose I went on to focus my interest um, very much in, in later years on problematic gambling and the development of problematic gambling as an illness in Ireland um, illicit drug dependence and family support and aftercare and the whole area of recovery coaching for people who have completed treatment programs um, be they community-based or residential. Um, so I've worked in the field now for 15 or 16 years. And you are correct when you say that Coonborough is the largest provider of residential services in the country. And it's the largest provider by a mile. I think it provides something like 40-odd percent of the residential treatment beds across the country. And that, in, in, in round figures, was approximately 200,000 bed nights per year at pre-COVID activity levels. So it's a very big organization. It's in existence for over um, 50 years. It was founded in 1966. And it it has a big part to play in the addiction, residential addiction rehabilitation field in Ireland. It's different to many organizations in that our programs tend to be long stay. Um, and they are what we do essentially is that we provide programs that are longer in duration. And in the early stages, at least, we probably drip feed the therapy at a slower rate than would one might do somewhere else. Um, I'm not saying we're necessarily better, but I am of the view that the giving the, the, the client the time and space in which to heal and to adjust to their new reality is sometimes very helpful um, because it is a hugely traumatic experience to, to give up an addiction of any kind and to come into residential treatment. And that time that we allow the clients to adjust by virtue of the fact that we are longer stay, in my view at least, is beneficial. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that that's one of the things that really kind of stands out from Coomber. And we have a lot of people ringing us over the years on the helpline and you'd be trying to go through their options with them. You know, are you looking for outpatient community treatment? Are you thinking about residential? If they're leaning towards residential, then you say, well, look, these are the options. If you're in the, 
the southeast. It could be Asheria. It could be the Rock at the Rutland Centre. It could be uh, the likes of Coonwera. And then you're trying to differentiate with people and say, well, look, there's the 28-day model, which most a lot of the other providers would would uh, deliver. And then Coonwera is, am I right in thinking it's 13 weeks residential? Yeah, it's 12 weeks residential for somebody with a gambling problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I suppose one of the differences um, between the other service providers and ourselves is that we provide detoxification, which may not necessarily relate to problematic gambling. Um, but the, the I suppose the hallmark of the past five years in the addiction rehabilitation field has been the emergence of these comorbid conditions. So we are rarely getting a client now um, who might have a gambling problem who doesn't have some issue with a chemical as well. So accordingly, that person would need to be detoxed. Um, and a big part of what we do is the first two weeks of the stay where individuals are detoxed um, and allowed to withdraw safely from substances for which they may have been abusing um, in a nurse-led 24-7 community-based detox setting. And I think that's very, very important because looking back and reflecting back on my own alcoholism, um, I remember the first treatment centre that I rang. And the person on the phone said to me, well, okay, we can take you into treatment, but you're going to need to stop drinking to come in. And my immediate reaction was, if I could stop drinking, we wouldn't have be having this conversation. So there has been this great anomaly out there that, that clients have to stop doing the thing that they can't stop doing in order to access services. And I suppose it's very important in terms of Coonvera that in, the, in a lot of cases where people are abusing chemicals, either on their own or in conjunction with a gambling problem, that it is possible for us to take them in and, and help them through that adjustment phase where they become substance-free and then go on with their program. Yeah, just, just to come in on that, Michael, if you don't mind, just from someone who's, who's probably come through the 12-week program as well, I found that the length of time, I needed the length of time that time for the 12 weeks. Now, while... I suppose our experience probably of, of, of talking to people is sometimes people can't give up the three months because they're still probably working. But I felt that my the, deto the detox element of it was so, so important. Even though I wasn't detoxing off um, alcohol, um, I definitely needed that time to try slow down the thinking. And my experience in the actual detox unit, I was that where you were just had that space just to try slow the head down. It was very difficult as a gambler to slow that head down. And I, I think it was nearly six weeks before I was in a position to really kind of throw myself into the program as such. I know it's really designed at a pace, as you said, drip feed into it, which I felt for me anyway, was highly important that I could um, take my time and do it because the old the gambler in me wanted to um, have it done, like nearly have it done for me. Um, so it was good that I was able to kind of ease into the program. So, so I found the, the 12 week model for me was ideal, but sometimes we find that people can't commit to that amount of time. Is that, is that your kind of experience as well that with gambling more so than alcohol? Well, I suppose, yes. And you made a very important point there, Tony, that people with, with, with jobs and with responsibilities that can't take the 12 weeks out to do a program um, are then have to seriously and realistically look at programs that will be shorter in duration or non-residential initiatives. Um, and I absolutely get that. And I suppose it's worth pointing out that I remember somebody saying to me years ago when I was in treatment myself and there was a discussion took place in a group about the relative merits of various treatments and various programs. The gentleman quite rightly pointed out, he said, there are people getting sober in every treatment centre every day of the week. And I suppose it's the willingness and with the enthusiasm that which the client engages with the programme is far more important than whether it's 12 weeks long or whether it's 30 days long. I, I do agree with you, though, in terms of when you talk about detoxing gamblers, and I use the phrase detox there in inverted commas, um, people we find with problematic gambling issues only that come into treatment benefit greatly from the two weeks, the first two weeks of the program where they have a quiet, safe space 
in which to try and gather their thoughts together. Because I don't have to tell you, gentlemen, that like the chaos that goes on in the mind of an active gambler pre-treatment is probably impossible for somebody to appreciate that hasn't experienced it. And in some cases, it's also beneficial if that problematic gambler is medically assisted through that first two weeks um, in terms of their mood and in terms of their anxiety levels and so on. So while strictly speaking, we don't detox gamblers from gambling because they have not been taking a substance, there are great similarities in terms of the, 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 the state of psychological degradation that people with gambling problems present themselves to treatment services in the same way that people with drug and alcohol problems do. Yeah, because I, I can remember the first couple of weeks getting extreme migraine-type headaches um, and even just having the... I remember one night in particular, it was probably a week into it, where it was just so bad during the night, I had to go into the nurse's station and just see if we'll get some kind of medication for it. And again, I wouldn't usually take medication. It was so bad, but even just to have someone to talk to at that hour of the night kind of eased you into into kind of... It made it that, that little bit easier. So I, I do, I totally agree with the first couple of weeks while you're not actually detoxing and um, using Librium that they might use for alcohol. It is so, so important to have that space down in the detox unit where you have that 24-7 kind of ability to chat to someone, even if it's only, you know, chat to people in your group or people who are, who are in the same unit as you, but also with the nurses and um, the unit men who kind of help out as well. So I did think I, I definitely needed that two weeks when I arrived in, I, I, I've mentioned before on a podcast, I was running around trying to get all the answers. I was trying to find Oshie McConnell's book because I thought that would give me all the answers. That all I do is just read this, I'll be fixed. Um, and there's only one chapter or two, a couple of chapters around gambling. And, and while it gave me a really great insight, I, it didn't give me the answers that I wanted because I wanted the easy way. And I think sometimes it, I just needed that, that couple of weeks just to try to get my head around it. But I also found it difficult as well because... I suppose a gambler's worst enemy then is, is is sitting with yourself in the early stages. So it kind of taught me, or it 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 started to teach me what I really needed to do in recovery, and that was patience. And you know, to learn that patience and the ability to be able to take that step back, um, which wasn't always easy. Because I remember one of the lads I was was in in I think it was in uh, week two when I was in week one. Um, there was a chess set in the sitting room. We were playing chess one day, and I remember my head was absolutely spinning, even just playing chess, because I was just my head was was just in a in a in a, in a really bad space. Um, so I had to kind of re- even learn within that that I had to kind of just really take a step back from everything, and I think that's really needed. Um, personally, I felt that that was needed for me anyway. Yeah, um, and. The, the, a lot of things about the detox unit and the Coombera centres are very important. The environments are very good. Um, you have this, as you explained, the kinship that exists between the, the unit facilitators and the, the, the residents who are also in treatment. And I suppose it provides a dynamic in an environment where it allows people to, to detach from the world outside and it gives them a good basis then to move forward in their program when they emerge from the detox unit um, and start engaging at a more serious level with group therapy and one-to-one counselling and that kind of thing. And again, as you pointed out there, it, it does give people the opportunity to gain experience of sitting with themselves. I suppose the solution to every addiction, irrespective of whether it's chemical or process, is that the client or the, the, the resident needs to develop over time the, the ability to sit with themselves and the ability to feel feelings and the ability not to fear feelings and emotions. Because a lot of the, the behavior that you described there about trying to find all the answers and running around like a headless chicken and all that type of thing is driven by fear. Um, and a lot of the, the, the maladaptive behaviors that you see within the addicted population, and again, I'm talking about everything, is an avoidance of that fear. So I suppose the beginnings of that process of being able to take responsibility for one's life and to face up to and sit with whatever it is one is experiencing take place in that very vital time, um, which is the first two weeks of their stay. Therapeutically, there might be a lot done, um, but there can be a lot achieved in terms of stabilization of the client, both from a medical point of view 
and from an emotional point of view as well. Yeah, I think there's a huge amount in that because, I mean, okay, I know, you know we've all trained as addiction counsellors, primarily in substance misuse, broadly speaking. And I know we're going to touch on this you know, before we came on air. We spoke about the idea that the lack of a, a knowledge base specifically around gambling addiction, problematic gambling in Ireland, because I'm sure there was no training <laughs> to start off with. But we're going to come back to the training thing. And, you know, it's makes absolute sense to have a detox unit for substance misuse because the person needs to detoxify from alcohol or, or other addictive substances. But I think there is that detoxification process for the person recovering from a gambling problem as well. So there's the, there's the racing thoughts, you know, the head on spin cycle and trying to dial down from that. And like people might go on a retreat just to try and ground themselves a bit and center themselves a bit if there's a lot of stress in their lives. I think that there might be that element to those those first two weeks. And you're saying there's not a lot of therapeutic stuff, but I think there's a maybe not a direct therapy intervention, but I think there's probably a lot of therapy happening for the person, the gambler, the recovering gambler in that situation. And then I think there's also that thing where with gambling, you're getting high on your own supply. So you're forcing your brain to produce lots of dopamine just the same way that you would if you were doing lines of cocaine but there's no lines of cocaine. <laughs> so there is a rewiring of the brain circuitry and a rewiring of that th those kind of dopamine uh, producing parts of the brain as well. So I think, and I don't think we know enough about that yet with, with people with gambling problems, but there's probably a physical detox, literal detoxification going on there as well. So I think there's huge value in that. And if you compare that then to the 28-day model, you know that same process still needs to happen and I'm not trying to kind of say that one model is better than the other, but like, if, you know, if you're detoxing for the first two weeks of your 28 days in treatment, you're really probably only in a place where you can actually listen and engage with the therapy two to three weeks in, possibly, you know, if you were comparing the models. I suppose, Barry, just come in on that as well. It, it, I think it was where my gambling had brought me as well because like you're dealing with the fallout of that as well so people are coming in dealing with you know uh, the fallout family wise or loss of job wise or whatever if, if you're dealing with the gambling is one thing but also what it causes is another part of it as well or the, the, the initial fallout so you know the where my head was at coming in was I was kind of running around every kind of scenario in my head kind of going like I was three weeks um, free of a bet when I walk through the doors but it was kind of like my head was still flying because it was kind of you're, you're you know you're dealing with the follow you're 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 trying to navigate um contacting your ex-employer you're kind of you know you're you know you're dealing with the shame the guilt all this stuff but it, there was so much going on in the family dynamic as well which often happens it probably differs for from some people that the, it, their head mightn't be as full of consequences or what's after happening as others maybe um so maybe that's where shorter term treatment might be okay for some whereas i i know myself i definitely needed at least it was about it was about eight or, and i think um i think um when matt gaskell was on as well he said that it takes about eight to ten weeks for the head to really start to slow down and recondition itself or start to recondition and that was definitely the case of mine because if you look at six weeks into treatment plus three weeks before that was probably about nine, 10 weeks before I was kind of um, kind of sitting there kind of going, hold on, now, I'm just about ready to start tackling this. So I suppose it's probably differs with everyone, but I, I found the enormity of probably what had preceded me walking through the doors um, was probably the biggest, um, was probably the biggest factor in me needing more time. Um, so yeah, so it's, uh, again, for me, it was, as I keep saying, it was, it was, it was, right, it was the right fit for me. Michael, yeah. we're just uh, before we came on out there as well, we were talking about, I suppose for people, because we have people listening, maybe about two thirds of the people who listen are based in Ireland and then the rest would be in the UK, maybe US, Canada, other English speaking parts of the world. And not everybody would be as familiar with Coonwara. So, I mean, Coonwara have sites all over the island of Ireland, including in Northern Ireland, uh, around Newry. I think there's quite a, a big one there as well. And you're based in Brewery, which is in County Limerick. 
and Tony would have attended a Thai, which is a, another one of the, the big treatment centers. And in a Thai, relatively recently, maybe in, in the last year or year and a half, they've opened up a gambling specific treatment. Uh, I don't know if it's a section or could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I, I, I suppose, you know, throughout Coonverda's history, and existence and and the almost all of this was down to our founder sister concilio who is still alive and well and very much involved in the organization and um, we 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 tried to set trends within our own organization but we also tried to preempt issues that we saw within the most marginalized groups of Irish society as we went along um and even from the get-go, I mean, Sister Concilio started out attempting to look after what she believed to be were homeless people. And very shortly into the experience, she realized that all these homeless people were alcohol dependent. So she actually, and she would say this herself, she kind of stumbled upon alcohol dependence in the mid-1960s in Ireland because the then homeless population of the country were so because they were alcoholic. There was little or no drugs at that stage. Um, and it went on from there. And we started to, in, we, we introduced detoxification when it wasn't done, strictly speaking, outside of hospitals. Um, we introduced meditation into the daily regime very early on in the time. I don't think it was necessarily a practice either. We introduced the notion of gender-specific treatment Again, because there are nuances between men and women and the, the, the manner and the ways in which various addictions affect the various um, sexes. So we've been constantly striving to provide bespoke, tailor-made solutions to various cohorts of the addicted population within Ireland for over half a century. And for the last two or three years, we've become increasingly alarmed about the number of young people who are presenting to us and they are telling us that they have serious issues with online gambling. And I suppose in response to that, Thai was the site. Now, we continue to treat gamblers across the entirety of our sites um, in the way that we did historically. But we came to the conclusion that really we weren't doing enough for people with problematic gambling issues. So we established a service in Thai in 2019 and there are about 30 beds um, where people who are suffering, suffering from the, the illness of problematic gambling, either as a standalone or as a comorbid issue with something else, can go. And we have dedicated professionals there um, who are quite conversant in dealing with individuals with problematic gambling issues who will look after them during the course of their stay. This is something we really want to develop further. And it ties in very much with the training initiative, which we will probably talk about at a later stage in the podcast. But we are absolutely committed to developing a residential center of excellence in the, the treatment of problematic gambling in Thai over the next number of years. Because from what we are experiencing and because of the size of our organization and because of the number of inquiries we get on a daily basis from people who have addictions of all shapes and sizes, we believe that we are fairly well positioned to preempt the way things are going. And certainly pre-pandemic, we were of the view that online gambling was becoming a huge issue amongst young men with cocaine problems and that it was becoming more of an issue albeit not as big amongst young women. And we have formed the opinion as the pandemic has, has carried on for a year and a half now, that that has got worse as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and all the restrictions that went with it. So we are confidently predicting that the demand for services from people who have problematic gambling issues for us will increase exponentially over the, the next few years. And the initiative in its high is an attempt to respond to that in the best way that we can. Brilliant. And it's great to see that because uh, we've touched on it a little bit before we, we started recording today. That's uh, traditionally, and this isn't a, necessarily a criticism, the, the kind of treatment models 
for substances and gambling have been a kind of a, for want of a better phrase, one size fits all model. Uh, and I'm like, having said that, I do want to make it clear that it's not a criticism. Tony went through that treatment service. He's been in good recovery for 10 years. Usher McConville, who we've had on the podcast, went through that exact same model with Kuhn, where Niall McNamee went through you know, a similar type of model, although shorter at the Rutland Centre and, and so on. So, you know, even if it's kind of a one-size-fits-all model, it works well for a lot of people a lot of the time. But, I, you know, would you think that there's an argument for modifying it for people who have, who have gambling issues uh, or for kind of working with people uh, with gambling issues separate from the people who have substance misuse issues. I know there can be an overlap there as well. Um, what are your, sorry, what are your thoughts on that, Michael? What you see, I think Barry, that the overlap is becoming more and more progressive um, in the most general sense as time goes on. I mean, if I were to go back 15 years ago to when I started in the field, every client that came through the door at that point, you could nearly have had three bins into which you could decant the three clients metaphorically. So you had gamblers, alcoholics, and drug addicts. And everybody that came in the door, you could, with a high degree of confidence, categorize that person into one of those three descriptions. Um, it would appear to me, and I'm saying this in the context of substances as much as gambling, that them days are gone. And that like we are getting individuals presenting now in their mid early to mid 20s who are abusing alcohol, drugs, and within drugs, more likely than not cocaine. And they're also gambling problematically. So they present a huge challenge to us in terms of, first of all, what do we what do we consider them? And second of all, how do we treat them? And I suppose that's what we are attempting to do in a tie. Practically speaking, it wouldn't be possible to, to segregate out all the gambling clients and put them in one place because so many of those clients also have either alcohol or drug dependence issues to address at the same time. Um, so what we have opted for and what we intend to continue developing is this blended approach where the person will come in and they will be treated within the mainstream population of the treatment centre. However, we are very cognizant of the fact that they have an addiction that differs fundamentally from simple or straightforward substance misuse issues. And we need to respond to that. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a complex area like that. I mean, you, you mentioned this just there, this, you know, back however many 50, 15, 20 years ago or, or longer, you could separate out people you know as alcohol only drugs only or gambling only and now there's so much overlap between those you know people with coexisting or comorbid conditions whatever name you want to put on it we haven't even touched on mental health and the dual diagnosis side of things which is another factor but that which further complicates things but all of that can be a feature i suppose in that kind of residential setting where there's a lot of group work going on and people are living in that kind of residential setting together yeah even with limitless resources it would be very very difficult to kind of separate out people into you know the people who gamble and use cocaine and the people who gamble and have alcohol issues and the people who just gamble you know, on its own and you know all the different kind of variations that, that could be possibly be there so i mean it's great to see that happening and it's great to see that uh, uh, option there for people as well because you know to, to to put more of a focus on i suppose the the differences that are there with gambling i think improves outcomes it's only ever going to improve outcomes for for people going through the various services you know if there is a, a focus there where there's a, a recognition that okay addiction is addiction and at the same time there are differences between say alcohol and drugs or just pure alcohol and pure drugs and so a behavioral addiction like gambling you know where there's a bit more of an overlap i think gambling always kind of struck me as something that was closer to an eating disorder in some ways because 
you have to have money in your life as you go through the rest of your life. Now, quite often there's restrictions placed on that. We would have spoken about that before, you know, just as a person with an eating disorder has to continue to eat food. You know, there's this uh, issue where a person who decides to give up alcohol or, ha you know, has an issue with alcohol. Well, you remove alcohol from your life. If you don't have alcohol in, the, in your life, same with drugs. But you have to have this triggering thing with money in your life as a person in recovery from a gambling issue. I think it, 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 there's that slight difference there that kind of complicates things and other differences as well. Yeah, there is, I suppose, there is that very valid argument in that money is, for want of a better description, a necessary evil in that people need to transact with money and handle money and have responsibility for money in recovery from gambling. But the more I look at it, Barry, the more I have to say, I, 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 I feel I am seeing striking similarities between stimulant dependence and gambling dependence. And the, I suppose the only fundamental difference being that the, the stimulant abuser is ingesting the chemical and the gambler is producing the chemical within his own body. Um, so in that respect, uh, and again, you have to remember that these are the ramblings of a layman now when it comes to talking about human biochemistry and that kind of thing. But I certainly do think that, like, as you said there earlier, the gambler is getting high on his own chemicals. And the ritual of the gambling are the means through which he gets his brain to secrete these chemicals to which he is addicted. Um, so in that respect, there would be great similarities between chemical dependence and gambling dependence and particularly striking similarities within stimulant with stimulant dependence and and uh, gambling dependence so that's that's certainly the way i look at it i'm not saying that's an organizational position i'm just saying that i think that that would be the case um and i think you know there's there's there is so much work to be done in that respect in terms of bringing international expect expertise um, in, in brain chemistry and behavioral psychology to the table so that we could learn more and understand better what goes on in the mind of an active problematic gambler um, and, and tailor our, our responses, our therapeutic responses accordingly. Um, and I suppose that's what we, going into the future, we will endeavor to do. Um, because even the face of problematic gambling in the past decade has changed so much with the advent of technology. This is probably, it's not probably, it's undoubtedly the fastest moving and the fastest changing disorder that organizations like Coonville deal with. Um, and going forward, we would see that pace of change will continue. As, as technology continues to evolve. Um, so we see this as being a big part of what we do into the future. Yeah, that is the worrying thing. I mean, alcohol has been around for a long time. There hasn't been a game changer in alcohol the way that there has been a game changer in gambling in, in recent years, going from land-based to smartphone gambling. You know, And I think all the services across the board have seen that. It's just this whole other animals this whole other beast at 24 7 bookies and ca casino in your pocket it, yeah we, 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 we spoke i think you spoke briefly about it earlier on about the, the trends that you're seeing i mean are you seeing certainly something we're seeing with people accessing our services it's trending younger um even two three years ago it tended to be mostly males not all but we are seeing more women coming forward but mostly males mid to late 30s where you know life's expectations were catching up with them they were planning to have a first child or apply for a mortgage and the consequences of their gambling was catching up with them and uh, let's say the last couple of years it's moving down to the early to mid 20s people are seeking help and you know how reluctant people are to seek help right so people tend to seek help around gambling in particular when there's quite a severe crisis going on in their lives like what sort of trends are you seeing in Coonwara, Michael? Yeah, we, we would, what we would be seeing, Barry and Coonwara, across the spectrum of the problems that we encounter on a daily basis is we are seeing things trending younger in every case. Um, and gambling is no different in that respect. We are seeing a particularly 
strong trend towards younger people where the gambling is a comorbidity with something else. Um, and we're seeing people as young, like we're seeing individuals now who are, to use the term cross addicted, which is a, a very old term now in, in, in this field, um, coming in now in their mid twenties and they have a cycle, they would appear at least to be as damaged as somebody we would have encountered in the late thirties, 10 years ago. And I suppose we spoke there earlier about the similarities between chemical dependence and gambling dependence. The one great difference between chemical dependence and gambling dependence is that the, the devastation and the consequences in the case of gambling seem to be far worse by the time the person takes the decision um, to come to treatment in the case of problematic gambling. And the rate at which these consequences can escalate is simply mind-boggling. I mean, somebody can go from zero to 100 um, with a gambling dependence in under a year. Whereas generally speaking with drugs and certainly with alcohol, there tends to be a progressionary period there of a number of years where the person goes from responsible drinking to heavy drinking to alcohol dependence to full-blown alcoholism. And in the case of drugs, they tend to go up through a hierarchy of substances that become progressively more harmful as their addiction goes on. Gambling is far different in that respect in that it's a far shorter time frame and the consequences tend to be very bad at the end, both in terms of the harm the person has done to their lives and in terms of the mindset and the condition that they're in when they come to the treatment centre. So I suppose that is the worrying part about it. Yeah, and just to come in there, we, we, we are definitely seeing that as well, that people, especially during the pandemic, are developing um, a gambling problem very, very quickly, like young males or young females that are presenting for support are seem to be getting into trouble um, in a shorter space of time than maybe they might have done years ago when it wasn't online. Um, and like I think you mentioned earlier on about money being a necessary evil. Um, I think I think the same can be said about smartphones because it's something that you know, the majority of us have and the majority of us probably couldn't live without at this stage. And we're still being bombarded by gambling advertisement with messages to gamble, um, the normalization of it. Um, you know, like even myself and Barry were, were chatting yesterday about just going on to the live score just to check out the um, Champions League matches on it and see what kind of advertisement uh, might be thrown at us while we were watching a match on it. And um, while I was trying to download it onto the telly yesterday, um, I just saw um, Twitch, is it? Um, and I just went into it, just though it was actually downloaded onto the telly. And I've heard about them doing these gambling related kind of um, streams. And I just went in out of intersect and I was just, I was probably on it for about 20 minutes and I was just taken aback by a, some of the videos that young people were putting up. Um, and um, it reminded me of a cleaner version of those late night ones where they're sitting, you know, you'd have naked women sitting in the rooms. Like you, you, these young people and they'd be sitting on a beach and they'd be, you know, for a certain amount of credit, you can get me to run to the sea and back and all this. My, my, I was just shake. I, I just found myself just shaking my head. But then when I clicked into the casino one, there was a casino based ones, and I clicked in. There's just people sitting there and talking to. And all like you had all the comments coming up on the left on the right hand side, and they're just normalising this behaviour. So if you if you have young people who, um, like my little one, could log on to the telly, go into that and look at these, and it just normalises. And the amounts of money I think he was putting. $1,250 on each spin. And it was on auto spin as he was talking. And I was just, my jaw was dropping looking at it. So I suppose, you know, these are the type of things that probably are not talked about enough within the gambling because these are the type of things that are going on. And I would have heard about, but until I actually saw it yesterday, it just really hit me the impact this could have on young children, young adults. And when they say, now again, I'm not a, I'm not a neuroscientist either, but they say that the frontal cortex part of the brain isn't fully developed till 25. So our decision-making capabilities mightn't be, um, you know, mightn't be fully there at 21 versus 25 or 26 or later. So it's kind of, a, it really is a recipe for um, kind of addiction disaster, if, if what a better way of putting it, because it is so normalized within sport. It is so normalized within games. Now it is so normalized within um, society 
that we are going to, I think we are going to see that trend continue, whereas younger and younger people present for help. And as you said, Michael, very rightly, people usually don't present until it's at that rock bottom place. And unfortunately, sometimes that, that rock bottom place can be people who die by suicide. You know, we see a lot about the, the big step and gamma lives in the UK at the moment. And a lot of people, I think the, some of the stats they were, they were kind of mentioning about suicide are, um, are really, really worrying as well. Um, so I suppose just there was one kind of question that kind of came to my mind when you were talking about the, the coexisting issues as well. Uh, do you notice or have you noticed with people in the, who present with gambling that there are other issues such as gaming, social media, kind of abuse or overuse, or um, as in my case, uh, shopping is something that definitely I have to keep an eye on. That, that comes in and out every so often, even though I haven't had a bet in 10 years. Shopping has come in and out at various uh, times, and I've spoke about before in the podcast, especially during the last 18 months or so. Um, I noticed that at various times when maybe, you know, we're all dealing with anxiety or, you know, different things due to the pandemic. And I found that shopping was something that was coming in at various times. Have, have you found that in people presenting? One of the things I have noticed over the past year or two, and it, it, I suppose it's kind of something I pursued um, with younger clients because I was interested in it, was to talk to them about things like internet usage and gaming. And I, I believe, and again, this isn't backed up with any empirical evidence, but based on my observations, that there are a very high percentage of these young people who end up gambling online problematically will say to you when they're in treatment that on reflection, when they look back and look at the way they behaved with gaming and social media and internet usage, free gambling, or maybe at the start of their gambling, that they can see great similarities between the obsessive nature with which they pursued gaming um, and online gambling. So like there is, I mean, there is a huge job of work. Like, I mean, I'm sat here and I was listening to what you're saying there, Tony, and it just struck me like the enormity of the things that we need to address as a nation in terms of gambling on the one hand, but in terms of educating our young people to be able to handle these stimuli that are coming at them now from all corners, from within a device that's in their pocket and on their person all the time. I mean, there's there's no youngster now at this stage that doesn't have a smartphone. At an extremely vulnerable, critical age, they are being bombarded by, as you described, um, opportunities and attractive um, um, scenarios and so on, which is attempting to, to draw them in. And I suppose, like, sometimes I did prime time there recently, and 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 sometimes I, when I talk about this, I get the feeling that that people think I'm having a pop at the Irish gambling industry, and I, I'm not necessarily doing so. There are worldwide um, sources of information that are feeding this in that we'll never be able to control through any gambling re regulation legislation in Ireland, even though I think the gambling industry does need to be regulated. Um, and the way forward in terms of minimising the number of people that will end up with these problems in the future is that we will really have to implement something tangible and robust and effective within education. That's really the only way I see out of it. Because Irish education has been wonderful at empowering people to make a living, but less wonderful at empowering them in how to live. Yeah. And so we have we have a great education system in terms of teaching people subjects. We are not as good at teaching people how to cope with the vicissitudes of life as they come across them and as they go along their way. And really and truly, you know, with gambling, we have this perfect storm because any problematic gambler ever will tell you that when he or she started to gamble problematically, they kept it a secret. And now they have the easiest way in the world of keeping it a secret because they are keeping it concealed in their pocket at all times. And they don't have to go to betting offices. They don't have to go to casinos. They don't have to go to slot machines to indulge. Yeah, and just to, it's great to see that, there, you know, and again, education and awareness is key. And it is a big part of our work as well. You know, we do a lot of school talks and, I think it's important to, again, it's not that we're anti-gambling in any shape or form or we're anti-gambling harm. 
And it's it, it's just about trying to um, help young people to understand the nature of gambling. You know the you know even you know the game design, um, the, you know going through a continuum, the different things to look out for. But it's it. I was looking at something on um, Twitter this morning. It was I know Paul Morrison came out yesterday and spoke very openly about it and Peter Shilton. I think their two books are out at the moment, and um, where they highlight gam- their gambling issues and. Um, Within a couple of services in the UK, um, after Paul Merson was on Breakfast TV yesterday, the amount of calls that came in to the service kind of really spiked. I know Barry has said before that sometimes when when I'd been speaking um, openly and you know back when the book came out, that he noticed that there was a spike. So the more that we can have people talking about this, especially people who talk very candidly, candidly about it, like Paul Merson and Peter Shilton, the more it, the less stigmatized it is, the more the people feel that maybe they can come forward to look for some support. That it is okay to ask for that help, um, especially with young people, because we see enough of the gambling industry using sports people um, to kind of to sponsor their their product or to be the the, the face of their product. Like how, how you know you have Jose Mourinho, Peter Crouch, and Steven Gerrard um, to name a few. And that kind of does that does normalize it a bit more for young people. So it is good that we are here in the far, the other side of it, people saying how it has impacted their lives. So I think we do need a lot more of that. And also, as we, we touched on earlier on, we do as probably clinicians need to really get more information, maybe different ways of working, be and to be obviously backed up by research. But I think that's so so important going forward. So that's why it is so important to have these conversations so that we can try keep up with the pace of movement of gambling um, because the treatment is still probably far off like the gambling is moving so fast it's just it's nearly impossible to keep up with that side of it um, especially with the rise of technology um, and that, that's why I think education awareness is, is key and also knowing how to um, treat the person when they do present for help and to have enough services there to be able to do that as well. It's huge. And hopefully that's when the regulation does come in. There's a levy. Hopefully we'll see more funding for that for different organizations. Yeah, and I suppose the other thing we need to do is we we and and again, you may have come across that this yourself and Barry in the course of your own work. There was an active disenchantment being expressed by clients who access treatment services who were forced because they had no option go into groups and dynamics with substance-dependent people with whom they could not identify. Um, And that's, again, not a criticism of any organization or indeed of us, but, like, that was all that was there, that, like, you could have had one person in a group in a treatment center with a gambling problem, and he or she had no option but to sit in that treatment program for its duration and have no access to, to... other problematic gamblers because they weren't there. Um, so again, the Atai initiative is an attempt to respond to this and to create dynamics within the treatment center setting where high degrees of identification take place between residents. Um, because we used, and Tony, you would know this from having been in Atai, that like the, the, the gambling dependent residents back at that time were spread throughout the entirety of the program from a timeline point of view. So like somebody was there in week three and there might be another gambler in week eight and another gambler in week 12. These centers are so big that like these people might hardly meet during the course of their stay, let alone um, get into any meaningful dialogue in terms of their gambling. So again, all these operational issues in terms of gambling we are now trying to address through this new initiative. Um, and we're being helped in no small way in that regard by the Gambling Awareness Trust. Um, and I like to express my gratitude to them um, because there are a lot of very forward-thinking people within that organization um, who see the need to, to develop and progress the ways we deal with people with problematic gambling issues in, in Ireland. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think it is very important that there are extra kind of supports for the gambler within the program. And when I went there, I was I was one of a group of fourteen, the only gambler 
I think in the group, or there's probably only three or four of us in the whole of um, the whole residential unit at that stage. But I I think throughout the GA meetings, throughout the program, like we we I suppose I went to GA meeting from week two onwards. You do connect with the other residents there, so like you do you do create connections, even though you might be in different weeks. And what I found really helpful was that you might see you might hear from someone who's in week eight and you're in week three. Um, and you're getting a little bit of hope from because you're lost in the first couple of weeks. You're getting a bit of hope that he he kind of gives you a bit of information about what to expect, what what not to expect. I think, um, like, I know that when when I I stayed on voluntary afterwards for for about a year before my own court case, and I remember myself and sister Susan we done an extra meeting on a Thursday night. I know that's what they're doing down there at the moment. They have a couple of different meetings uh, specifically for the gamblers and talking to a couple of people who have come through it or um and i i have i've got on zoom calls to some of the residents over the last couple of months as well it was organized through um trevor and a couple of other people down there it's it really you can kind of you can definitely see there's a, a change in how the gamblers are being kind of looked at i suppose looked after is the wrong way but but how the program has changed and you can do you can see the benefit it has to them but the biggest part for me um, even though I was in a group with people who were um, who were kind of there for alcohol, um, it was that connection to the group. And I know Concilio, Sister Concilio talks about the power of the group the whole time. And that really helped me within recovery. Even though it was different addiction, I felt when I was explaining kind of my addiction that they were, they listened and they were open to it. I didn't feel judged when I was telling my my story. And there was a huge overlap. Um, and the biggest thing I probably would have got from treatment, and I, I often wonder why residential treatment works so well. Um, I think it is the, the group work is the one-to-one, the therapeutic, but I also think it's the structure and discipline, the structure of the day, especially for a gambler. We talk with time, access, money, and with time, especially the structure of the day, so that you have specific things to do with each part of the day. I think that was a huge part of me getting through that program and, and, and getting out the far side of it and, and being in good recovery is learning the discipline to do things you, ne- you might necessarily want to do, but also the, to have that structure that at a certain time you had to be somewhere, you had to do something, or you had to be in a meeting. And for me, that was huge. That was as important for where I was in life at the time to get that discipline and structure back into my life because when gambling was all over the place and the chaos was there for everyone to see. So that part of it was was brilliant, um, but also now with the new with you with the new unit, from what I'm hearing, from talking to a lot of people who have gone through it or going through it, the extra bit of focus on the gambling side of it um, has been a, a godsend, and, and that's the that's the experience that a lot of people are having there, which is which can only be a good thing for recovery. Yeah, and again, there was something we looked at Tony in advance of you know. Again, this fascination I have with observing people and observing outcomes. And I won't say trying to predict the future, but trying to gain some learning from what I see going on around. It became apparent to me, I spent 10 years working in aftercare in Cork City. Um, And I would definitely say I learned more in the aftercare group about people and about addiction than I ever learned in that 10 years working five days a week in a residential center. And one of the things that fascinated me was when somebody came to treatment with a comorbid addiction that included gambling. So in other words, somebody turns up in brewery and they have an alcohol problem and a gambling problem and they do a treatment program. Almost invariably, if that person relapses, it's gambling they relapse on which I thought was very fascinating that like you would see somebody there that might have two or maybe three presenting issues. But in the event of that person going back, they always seem to go back to the gambling for some reason. And I, I'm not saying I've got to the bottom as to, of, uh, of to why this happens, but it is undoubtedly a fact that maybe it's because they can hide it easier. Maybe because you can bet and nobody will know, whereas if you have a few drinks, everybody will know that's close to you. Um, but certainly the the lure of gambling um, in terms of the hierarchy of the problems the person is dealing with, it's almost always at the top of that, that hierarchical relationship. 
Yeah, I think there's there's something in what you're saying there, Michael. That if a person is struggling and they're looking for a coping mechanism and they've a choice between relapsing back into alcohol or relapsing back into gambling, you know, which one are you most likely to get caught doing? Well, it's the alcohol, isn't it? <laughs> that might might be part of it. And I suppose if you're in that place where you're just looking for something that's gonna people quite often use alcohol gambling and, and drugs as coping mechanisms for dealing with stressors in their lives and uh, or it can be it can tick a lot of other boxes for people as well but i think your your theory on i suppose gambling being the easiest one to hide there's probably something in that um now i have worked with a lot of people for whom you know they'd have say coexisting addictions uh but gambling is the one that's that's at the forefront all the time that they can put kind of manage let's say the alcohol or the the drug misuse or drug addiction issue much better but that the gambling for whatever variety of factors keeps coming to the to the forefront of the mind I know you you need to go on and I, I didn't want to let you go without uh, checking in with you about the the training uh, program that's coming up uh, through Coonwara, which focuses uh, on gambling addiction. Could you tell us a little bit of that about that before we go finish up, Michael? Yes, but Barry, um, and I suppose this is very much um, linked to the the Italian the Italian initiative in that. We, we have decided and we are working with MTU, Munster Technological University, who are our education partners in the counselling degree programme, um, to develop a postgraduate qualification for practitioners where we will do as deep a dive as possible into the whole field of problematic gambling treatment um, and ways in which we can all learn very valuable information from international sources. So we have QQI validation got for the program. It's going to be a level eight special purpose award. We believe it will commence in January. Um, and we would love to have an opportunity to talk maybe about that with yourselves at greater length, maybe on another podcast or whatever, because given the pace of change and given everything that's happening and everything that has happened in the world, I believe it's, it's a very meaningful thing for us to do as an organization at this juncture to upskill our own staff in, in a primary context, but also to provide the opportunity to other practitioners and other services um, to come in and to partake of this learning um, so that we can make the, the resident experience, the client experience for somebody with a problematic gambling issue a better one. Yeah, I think that's so important. And it's great to hear that you're, you're working on that. Michael, and I suppose QQI, for people who don't know, is a kind of, the only kind of educational qualification certification that matters in Ireland across the board. Like, so it's great. It's, it's no easy thing to get the QQI accreditation on anything. It requires a lot of work and a fair bit of uh, investment of time and money and other resources. So that's brilliant to hear that. And I think it's so badly needed. Myself and Tony have spoken about this before. Like I graduated my degree uh, 10 years ago uh, this year and it was four-year part-time degree in addiction counseling the word gambling was never mentioned once in four years and that's not a criticism of, of, of where i did my degree necessarily because i've spoken to lots of other counselors psychotherapists and frontline addiction workers around the country over the years done bit deliver bits of cpd training and you know having conversations with people and the vast, vast, vast majority of people who work in the addiction space will tell you exactly the same thing. Gambling has been this kind of afterthought. As sure, if you know how to work with substances, you might occasionally see somebody with a gambling problem and just, you know, do the same thing that you did with the substances. Right? And of course, you know, it, it, it's a bit more complicated than that. You know, and I, I suppose for me starting out, I was completely winging it with with clients who presented with gambling problems because I, I had to learn on the job you know, I didn't really know enough about it and there definitely are differences as I've, I've learned and I'm still learning uh, over the last 10 years but it's great great to hear that Kunwara and MTU are doing that would you have any idea when that uh, might be coming online or coming on stream well we intend we we will we don't we we fully plan to take in our first intake of students in January 
or semester two of, the, of this academic year. And we hope to do two intakes per year. So we'd imagine there would be 15 to 20 students, hopefully, per intake. Um, and we're currently working up a prospectus um, for, the, for the training, which we will, we will send on to you in due course. That will be, that will be out in the very near future. Um, what we're working on at the moment is we are trying to get the best international expertise we can find to lecture on the course. And I think that's very important. We intend it to be a very, very um, high quality experience for anybody who participates in the training. And we are very accepting of the fact that the per se, the knowledge may not exist here in Ireland to be able to resource such an undertaking so we are looking abroad at places like the UK and particularly in America uh, at the moment and negotiating with people out there to know would they be guests. And we look forward to updating you on that in the future. Brilliant. Now, I can sign me up anyway because I'd like to actually have <laughs> some bit of paper that says that I know something about gambling, although I have done bits of training over the years. But I think you know something like that and i think you have to look internationally like we've had lots of i suppose experts from different parts of the world on the podcast over the years and we're regularly in conversations with people uh because the knowledge base even internationally like you have to kind of spread the net pretty wide to find people who are at that kind of cutting edge of treatments of uh, education of uh, harm prevention interventions they're out there um but Certainly in Ireland, I think we've been maybe not lagging behind because a lot of people get great help. So I don't think it's fair to say lagging behind. But I think to get something on that kind of footing where it's QQI accredited course from a university with the likes of you know Kunwara uh, backing us and developing us, like that's extremely important to have that there. So you can certainly sign me up. Uh, Tony does every course imaginable known to gambling. So <laughs> I think you'll have another one. I don't want to be speaking for Tony, but you do do a lot of training. Hey, it's not need, Tony, there's no need to speak for Tony. Tony, <laughs> he's he see booked some months ago um, yeah. to do yeah. this. So he's, he's ahead of the curve there. The curve, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of doing a great one that Jody Beck told um, has developed in America. I'm in the middle of doing that at the moment. So yeah, there's that's very good. And I'll definitely be signing up for that one as well. There's always... And of course, even though you, you might feel, you know, some a, a good bit of stuff, it's always an opportunity to learn, especially when you're in a room with like-minded people trying to learn about this huge learning. So I'll definitely be on one of them, whether it's January or the second intake, I'll definitely be applying. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to that. And, and again, as I think the word maybe you're looking for, Barry, is going to enhance what's already out there, I think, especially yeah. in the Coomberas, um, which, again, as I always say, saved my life. It's great that you know, that there's going to be more focus put on gambling. It was something that I advocated for a little bit when I was there. I remember having a few conversations with District Concilio and Gardner Street, trying to um, persuade her to get something going. And it's great to see that it did finally get something in place, which I think will help so, so many people. And like we've, um, I referred one or two people in already, and I'm looking forward to catching up with one of them in the next couple of days who's actually leaving this week so it's all good it really is so it's brilliant it bodes well for the future of of um you know of treatment for gambling in ireland yeah absolutely and i mean i i think there's another distinct advantage of the training is it's going to bring key people together aside at all from the the quality of the lectures and stuff which will be hopefully top class but it will bring key people together who will be able to explore ideas and thinking in terms of where are we going next? Because it's so rapidly evolving. Yeah. I mean, in the last 15 years, alcohol never changed. Drug dependence evolved to some extent in terms of polysubstance misuse and so on, but nothing ever to the extent and pace as what's happening with problematic gambling. Yeah, and that's the thing. We are, we're all playing catch-up, and it's great to get, I suppose, as many people talking to each other and, uh, I suppose, picking one another's brains and getting the best experts in from all around the world to try and give the best supports to people uh, as, as humanly possible. And like Tony says, to enhance all the great work that's already going on on the ground. Michael, I know we've gone over the time and I'd like to thank you so much for your, giving us your time today. Hopefully we'll get you back in maybe again to talk more about the training course in, in detail when that's up and running because I know uh, 
a lot of people listen to the podcast are people in recovery or family members, but then there will be a, a group of people who are, uh, say, counselors, psychotherapists, or frontline workers in addiction services who listen to it as well, who'd really benefit from uh, that course as well, I think. So we might, might get you back in if you're available uh, at some point closer to the date just to get more details on that so we can uh, provide them to, to people who might benefit from them. Well, listen, Michael Garen, uh, addiction counsellor with Coon Wera based down in Brewery. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your, your time and your knowledge with us today. I really appreciate it. And keep up the great work. And uh, uh, yeah, for everyone at Coon Wera, look, who are providing supports um you know tony's spoken about it before and we know ourselves from from either referring people in or, or talking to people who've uh, gone through the service over the years the kind of supports that are provided on a massive massive scale uh so michael thanks a million and hopefully we'll be talking again soon thanks very much it was a pleasure barry thank you thanks michael thanks tony Thank you.